Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Rounding the Earth. This is part five in my special investigation series titled Examining Effective Altruism, digging into the origins of the enigmatic ideology underpinning the backstory of the now-disgraced FTX founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. Now, this was originally intended to finish as a series at the end of 2022, but it has continued to take interesting twists and turns that I was not anticipating. As such, I will disclose right off the bat that part five, today's episode, will not be the final chapter. Instead of skipping huge chunks of material that I now believe to be highly relevant in order to stick the landing as I was planning, I've chosen instead to spend the appropriate amount of time and attention on each bit of the story and will continue to follow the trail wherever it leads. For now, this multi-part story has led us into some very interesting places indeed. Let's take a look. But first, if you are a fan of Rounding the Earth, if you like the Effective Altruism series that I've done here, um, don't forget to go to www.roundingtheearth.locals.com where you can subscribe, become a free or paid member, and be part of the community and enjoy exclusive live streams uh, for stuff not yet available for wide public consumption. So I highly recommend you do that. All right, now moving on. Ah, what a beautiful set of icons, if you ask me. In any case, part one introduced us to the modern figurehead of effective altruism, William McCaskill, and his empire of altruistic ventures. Part two took us back in time to the spooky founding of LifeLog and then Facebook around a cast of characters including Dustin Moskovitz, Eduardo Saverin, Mark Zuckerberg, Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, Sean Parker, and Chris Hughes. Part three carried through the story of Dustin Moskovitz and his abrupt turn into philanthropy alongside his now wife, Carrie Tuna. And part four explored Effective Altruism's ideological godfather, Peter Singer, on his academic journey around the globe and work advancing research in various branches of pseudo-eugenics and the passing of the baton from Singer to McCaskill in modern times. Now that the history and the roots of effective altruism are well established, we can start to identify where it is that Sam Bankman freed and the FTX saga come into the picture. If we want to truly understand the man and what led him to chart the course for his life that he did, we have to first look at the two people responsible for bringing him into this world. Meet Sam Bankman Freed's parents. Yes, Sam Bankman Freed was born March 6th, 1992, in Stanford, California, to Joseph Bankman and Barbara Freed. Joseph Bankman, his father, is an American lawyer and psychologist. He graduated from the University of California at Berkeley in 1977 and Yale Law School in 1980. While at UC Berkeley, Bankman was a member of Phi Beta Kappa, which describes itself as America's most prestigious academic honor society. Its long list of prominent members includes 
I'm just going to rush through these. Amy Coney Barrett, Supreme Court Justice, Alexander Graham Bell, Pete Buttigieg, Jimmy Carter, Samuel Clemens, otherwise known as Mark Twain, Kellyanne Conway, Rivers Cuomo of Weezer, Brad Delson of Lincoln Park, Dinesh D'Souza of 2000 Mules fame, David Duchovny of The X-Files, Josh Hawley, Ashley Judd, Helen Keller, Henry Kissinger, Peyton Manning, Condoleezza Rice, Susan Rice, John Roberts, John D. Rockefeller, Sr. and Jr., President Franklin D. Roosevelt, Michael Schur of The Office, Ben Shapiro of The National File, yes, that Ben Shapiro, Sonia Sotomayor, Supreme Court Justice, George Stephanopoulos, Katerina Yevchenko, who is the former First Lady of Ukraine, and Robert Zuelik of the World Bank and former White House Deputy Chief of Staff. I think former. This, of course, could mean nothing apart from being a very interesting and diverse group of people. It's possible. Now, according to Bankman's CV, he was an associate at a legal services firm called Tuttle and Taylor from 1984 to 1988. The firm has undergone a series of name changes over the past century, starting as Harriman, Rickman, and Tuttle, and most recently operating as Tuttle Law Group. Its founding partners were politically active in the early 1900s, representing the face of American socialism. This included high-profile runs for office by self-described Marxist Job Harriman for mayor of Los Angeles and even vice president of the United States on the ticket with Eugene V. Debs, who, if I understand correctly, was in jail at the time that he was running. Harriman ran into a fatal campaign obstacle when one of his clients pled guilty to bombing the offices of the Los Angeles Times. We call that a facepalm moment. He then went on to found a commune. Oh, man, I had pictures of the commune. Where did they go? Oh, well, we have this advertisement here. To found a commune in California called Lano del Rio, which then moved itself to Louisiana. Anyway, his co-founder, Edward W. Tuttle, also ran on the socialist platform for City Auditor of Los Angeles. A scholar interested in social reform, Tuttle joined the faculty of USC School of Law before forming a new firm with his son, Edward E. Tuttle, in 1941 called Tuttle and Tuttle. The junior Tuttle served as group supervisor on Caltech, that's California Technical Institute of Technology, so on and so forth, Caltech classified projects, including the Manhattan Project, to develop the atom bomb during World War II. He also served on the board of the Los Angeles World Affairs Council, which, at least according to Wikipedia, would go on to host many high-profile speakers, including Presidents George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, British Prime Minister Tony Blair, George Soros, former CIA Director David Petraeus, King Charles, then not King Charles, the Dalai Lama, Vice President Dick Cheney, John McCain, Jeffrey Sachs, Larry Summers, Elon Musk, and former Secretaries of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and Robert Gates. The firm took on another partner in 1951, Robert Taylor. There he is. Leading to yet another name change in 1954 to Tuttle and Taylor. Taylor had attended Wheaton College, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Harvard University, and Stanford University while in the U.S. Naval Reserve. The firm closed down in 2001, 
before being relaunched as Tuttle Law Group. Okay, so that is a bit of Bankman's backstory, at least in terms of uh, that was the firm that he worked for. That was uh, in the 80s. That was the legacy that he partook in. Now, Bankman simultaneously, uh, after this, took a position as assistant professor at the University of South California Law Center, leaving for Stanford Law School in 1988 to become a professor in law and business. He remains at the school to this day. He is considered a leading scholar in the field of tax law, having written and presented on the topic of tax shelters and regulatory compliance for years. As described on his Stanford Law School bio, his writings on tax policy cover topics such as progressivity, consumption tax, and the role of tax in the structure of Silicon Valley startups. Another area of interest and practice for Bankman is psychology. Ten years ago, Bankman acquired his clinical psychologist license and began advocating cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, while co-hosting the Wellness Cast podcast for law students, describes Srinija Grandi on M-E-A-W. Okay, now that's great. That is Joseph Bankman. That is the man's father. Now, let's move on to Barbara Freed. This is his mother, who is also a law professor at Stanford. Her staff bio describes her as having written extensively on questions of distributive justice in the areas of tax policy, property theory, and political theory. She received numerous degrees from Harvard University between 1977 and 1983. According to Influence Watch, one of my new favorite websites, Freed started her career as a clerk to Judge J. Edward Lombard of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. She then worked for the firm Paul Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison in New York City from 1984 to 1987. The firm, together with its predecessor firms, has been a presence in New York City for nearly 150 years and a part of the international legal community for more than 50 years. Interestingly, Tencent Holdings hired the firm in 2020 to lobby on their behalf. For those who don't know, Tencent is the owner of WeChat, a key mobile application in the Chinese social credit system. And quick sidebar, it's also the app that uh, Elon Musk has said he would like to turn Twitter into because we don't have a WeChat here. Tencent Holdings also, if I'm not mistaken, is a major funder of several of Elon Musk's ventures. Okay. Now, Freed joined Stanford Law School in 1987. In a 2013 interview for the school, Freed discussed a number of topics directly related to effective altruism, particularly the subject of utilitarianism. I quote, Libertarians and Rawlsians agree on very little, but they share a fundamental hostility to utilitarianism, says Freed. She explains that the goal of utilitarianism is to maximize overall well-being for society as a whole. The strict version of utilitarianism pursues that goal by throwing everyone's well-being into the same hopper, aggregating all gains and losses to well-being from 
different policy options and then choosing the one that offers the greatest good. Freed questions the notion that rights theory makes any more sense than the above described approach. I continue the quote, however rich a country is and however much of its GDP it devotes to healthcare, at some point it will have to choose between allocating more money to say cancer research or early childhood prevention, she says. And before we have gotten to that particular set of hard choices, we will have made scores of others in deciding how much of our budget to allocate to healthcare to begin with, rather than, say, education, the military, social security, etc. But, Fried explains, the necessity for trade-offs is hardly limited to material resources. Every time you get in a car, re-roof your house, or walk onto a crowded city bus, your conduct poses some risk of physical or psychological harm to others. The job of any rules of the road, be they government regulation or moral norms, is to figure out how to balance your legitimate interests in pursuing your life projects against others' interests in not being harmed. Oh, sorry, sorry. Allow me to rephrase. Balance your legitimate interests in pursuing your life projects against others' interests in not being harmed in that process. And however we strike that balance, if different people will be affected differently, we will necessarily be trading off one group's well-being for another's. Utilitarians, say Freed, says Freed, have faced that necessity head on. However unappealing one might find their answer, at least it is an answer. Wright's theory, in contrast, has yet to provide one. Utilitarians like Peter Singer, perhaps? Indeed, in 2015, Freed wrote a review of Singer's book titled The Most Good You Can Do, How Effective Altruism is Changing Ideas About Living Ethically. Right in the opening paragraph of her review, Freed cites Singer's 1972 essay titled Famine, Affluence, and Morality, the very same essay that led William McCaskill to kick off his own foray into effective altruism. She then demonstrates that she is well aware of the intricacies of the EA movement, describing it as a worldwide network of people who have made a commitment to fight global poverty and disease. Though he's not mentioned by name, Freed alludes to an effective altruism practitioner who donated one of his kidneys to a stranger, which almost certainly refers to Matt Wage, a student of Singer's at Princeton and an employee at Jane Street Capital. She concludes the review by saying, the core message of EA is as powerful now as it was when Singer first pressed it 40 years ago. The central challenge for EA, as it works to go mainstream, is to translate that message into a call to action with broad appeal. Quick sidebar with John Such, who says it's all camouflage for predators. Systemic camouflage and ideological camouflage. Not a bad observation, John. Now, Freed also served for a time on the board of directors for Stanford University's McCoy Family Center for Ethics in Society. The McCoy Center 
is heavily funded by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. It has also played host to Peter Singer for at least one major talk on effective altruism around the same time of Freed's review of his book. Singer and Freed both occupy the academic realm of ethics, so it would make sense to find their work featured on the same stages or published within the same issues of journals. For example, volume 110, number three of Ethics. I'm just going to pull myself out of here real quick so you can see that. Now, one of the biggest points of political intrigue to come out of the FTX debacle was the revelation that Barbara, Fe Barbara Freed was behind, quote, a secretive Silicon Valley group that has funneled over $20 million to Democrats. This group is a super PAC, or political action committee, but a super version, called Mind the Gap. According to Open Secrets, Mind the Gap began operations no later than the 2018 election cycle, which saw Democrats reclaim the House of Representatives from Republicans. As of January 2020, Mind the Gap had been formed less than two years ago, in quotes, yet had already been quietly routing millions of dollars to Democratic candidates and groups across the country in the 2018 and 2020 election cycles, emerging as a new power center in the Silicon Valley political scene. In a sense, Mind the Gap can be seen as fitting in perfectly with Time Magazine's description of the shadow campaign that saved the 2020 election. For those of you not familiar, on screen right now is a graphic that I took from that Time Magazine article. And this is a good time to remind you that the show notes are available in the what should be the first link in the video description, no matter which platform you're watching on. That'll take you to roundingtheearth.locals.com and the specific post for today's episode, where one of the first links there will be the show notes. In any case, I quote, this is from the Time Magazine article. A well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage, and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election. They were fortifying it. End quote. As John Suits points out in the chat, cabal, they called themselves a cabal, according to the article. That word was used deliberately. I highly recommend reading it if you haven't, everyone. I think John does as well. Now, there are many people and organizations specifically named in the self-expose authored by Molly Ball, Leslie Dickstein, Mariah Espada, and Simone Shaw. I compiled a list of those people and organizations named in the Time article on the Campfire Wiki page for the 2020 election. I can't help but wonder, as I continued, or I, I should say, at the time that I was writing this script, I wondered, as I continue to write this, how close will Mind the Gap and the Bankman Freeds and Effective Altruism as a whole wind up being associated with this self-described cabal? Now, I didn't have to wait long to find out. 
reviewing Mind the Gap's FEC, that's the Federal Election Commission's filings on open secrets, reveals that from 2018 to 2022, the PAC sent over $100,000 to a company called the Analyst Institute, which is indeed named in the Time Magazine article. The Analyst Institute's client list from 2021 and to 2022 is full of liberal political action committees and non-governmental organizations, including Act Blue, Color of Change, Future Now Fund, League of Conservation Voters, Move On, NARAL Pro-Choice America, National Democratic Training Committee, Next Gen Climate Action, Obama for America, Planned Parenthood Votes, Progressive Change Campaign Committee, Progressive Turnout Project, Swing Left, and Women Vote. Most overtly, though, its clients include the Democratic National Committee itself. Others of interest include the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the Democratic Parties of New Mexico and Tennessee, and the Sierra Club. Funnily enough, the Sierra Club also shows up in the Time article. I quote, the summer uprising had shown the people power could have a massive impact. Activists began preparing to reprise the demonstrations if Trump tried to steal the election. Americans plan widespread protests if Trump interferes with election, Reuters reported in October, one of many such stories. More than 150 liberal groups from the Women's March, to the Sierra Club, to Colors of Change, to Democrats.com, to the Democratic Socialists of America, joined the Protect the Results Coalition. The group's now-defunct website had a map listing 400 planned post-election demonstrations to be activated via text message as soon as November 4th. To stop the coup they feared, the left was ready to flood the streets. So there you go. The Sierra Club and the Analyst Institute. They were both part of this. The Sierra Club, though, it's an environmental preservation organization with uncomfortably close ties to eugenics. An article released by Politico's Environment and Energy Publishing shortly after the death of George Floyd in 2020 described the club's founder, John Muir, as repeatedly denigrating Native Americans who lived on the lands he cherished, referring to them as dirty. And he notoriously used the derogatory term Sambos, referring to African Americans. It gets worse. The Sierra Club had other prominent members who espoused racist views. David Starr Jordan, who was on the club's board during Weir's presidency, was a kingpin of the eugenics movement, Brune noted, including advocating for the forced sterilization laws that affected predominantly Black, Latina, and Indigenous women. He also co-founded the Human Betterment Foundation, which produced research later taken up by the Nazis. Now that's a word that'll get me kicked off YouTube. Muir was also friends with Henry Fairborn, or Fairfield, sorry, let me try that name again. Henry Fairfield Osborne, a New York City aristocrat and conservationist, who was also a white supremacist. Osborne helped found the American Eugenics Society, which promoted the idea of population control and genetics manipulation. 
In modern times, the club has been called out for operating as a money and influence laundering front for its donors and directors, including activities that violated nonprofit tax law. A report from the Energy and Environment Legal Institute describes, for example, the degree of influence the Sierra Club has gained over regulatory activities at the United States Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. It also names the following donors as effectively benefiting from their altruistic contributions. See what I did there? To the Sierra Club and its foundation. We got Michael Bloomberg through Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Family Foundation, and Bloomberg LP. Nathaniel Simons and Laura Baxter Simons through the Sea Change Foundation, Elan Management, and Prelude Ventures. We have Roger Sant through the Summit Foundation and Applied Energy Services, or AES. Recurrent Energy Development through a partnership with Google and Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts & Co. The Tides Foundation and the Tides Center. The Energy Foundation through the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Mertz Gilmore Foundation. Ah, yes, the Hewlett Foundation once again. Recall from part two of this series that Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskovitz were guided by a representative from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation early on in their venture into effective altruism and their founding of Good Ventures. Add on to this the fact that the foundation has been a primary funder of the McCoy Family Center for Ethics in Society, where Barbara Freed sat on the board, and it's looking even more interesting. Now, I hadn't looked much at that at the point that I stumbled on this into the Hewlett Foundation, other than noting their funding of many, many organizations associated with this investigation and frankly, a lot of other things related to COVID. What I didn't realize until reading the above described E&E Legal Institute report is that the late William Hewlett was two things. One, he was the Hewlett part of Hewlett Packard. Apparently, I had already known that and expressed it to my partner. I don't remember knowing that. But two, he was an outspoken advocate of population control policies. Something else worth pointing out is the fact that many of these so-called progressive, non-governmental organizations seem to focus on a lot of the same things without an obvious connection between these causes. In this case, the E&E report provides a pretty interesting explanation using the Hewlett Foundation as an example. I quote, how does environmentalism fit into the Hewlett Foundation's efforts and other like-minded groups to address an overcrowded world? The answer, the Hewlett Foundation funds both environmental and population control groups not by coincidence, but because it thinks that an increase in human population must degrade the environment. The Hewlett Foundation website states, for example, that as populations have grown in size and affluence, so too has the negative impact on the environment caused by their greater fossil fuel use. The Foundation's Population Project is focused on helping women and families choose the number and spacing of children, protecting against sexually transmitted infections, and eliminating unsafe abortion. 
Such language is a thinly veiled defense of abortion on demand, which the Hewlett Foundation supports generously. End quote. Indeed, this summary ties together activism around climate change, population control, and infectious disease in a succinct logical package based on the Foundation's own words. Taking it a step further, the author of the report states, put more directly, the foundations of, of the Rockefellers, Ted Turner, Bill Gates, David Packard, and William Hewlett support high-cost and unreliable energy sources, surely knowing this will cause the premature death of millions, perhaps billions, of people worldwide. Something they think is not merely acceptable, but even desirable. Of course, they know it will have no effect on their families. End quote. Very dark. Okay, now back to the Sierra Club. Based on the Sierra Club Foundation's tax filings and annual reports from 2001 to 2016, supplemented by a very informative write-up from Influence Watch, their friends and donors have come from all walks of power. There is a lot of names on the list that I have published on the Campfire Wiki page for the Sierra Club Foundation, and I came nowhere near close to being able to fit them all on screen. So, here is a long yet succinct, hopefully, list of their donors. We have philanthropic grants from giants, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Craigslist Charitable Fund, David and Lucille Packard Foundation, the Ford Foundation, MacArthur Foundation, McKnight Foundation, Merck Foundation, that is, Musk Foundation, Oak Foundation, Omidyard Network, Pew Charitable Trust, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, Skoll Global Threats Fund, Tides Foundation, Turner Foundation, yes, as in Ted Turner, who also founded the United Nations Foundation, which is also on this list, United Way, Wallace Global Fund, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the YMCA. Then we have pharmaceutical and biotech giants, including Amgen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Acai, Genentech, Genzyme, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Medtronic, Merck, Pfizer, Regeneron, Takeda, and Thermo Fisher Scientific. We have tech giants, including Apple, Dell, eBay, Google, Hewlett-Packard, IBM, Intel, Microsoft, Motorola, Oracle, PayPal, Salesforce, Siemens, Sun Microsystems, and Yahoo!, we have entertainment giants, including the Entertainment Industry Foundation, Hulu, the National Hockey League, or the NHL, Sony Pictures Entertainment, and Time Warner. Tele telecommunications giants, including AT&T and Verizon. We have banking, investment, and financial services giants, including American Express, Bank of America, Bank of New York Mellon, Barclays, BlackRock, Charles Schwab Corporation, Citibank, David Rockefeller Fund, Deutsche Bank, Fannie Mae, Fidelity, Fre Freddie Mac, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, J.P. Morgan Chase, KPMG, Lehman Brothers. Yes, that Lehman Brothers. Merrill Lynch, Moody's, Prudential, Rockefeller Capital Management, Sally Mae, State Street, UBS, U.S. Bank, Vanguard, Visa, and Wells Fargo. We have big oil, including 
American Petroleum Services, BP, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Halliburton, and Shell. Food giants including Coca-Cola, Kraft Foods, Mondelez, Monsanto, Nestle, PepsiCo, Starbucks, Unilever, and Whole Foods Market. Science and healthcare giants, including the American Heart Association, who, by the way, is a member of the World Economic Forum, believe it or not. The Elsevier Foundation, John Wiley and Sons, both of which are scientific journal public publishers. We have Kaiser Permanente, Sage Publications, and Tenet Health. Media giants, including the Chicago Tribune, MSNBC, The New York Times, and Thomson Reuters. Military contractors, including Aerojet, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, and Qualcomm. Government bodies, including the states of California and Montana, as well as the National Committee on United States-China Relations. And the Center for American Progress, a think tank founded by the ever-controversial and current climate czar of the United States, John Podesta. And... Steve Kirsch, through his Stephen and Michelle Kirsch Foundation. That was a that was a mouthful. John points out yesterday's Malthusians and eugenicists are today's stakeholders. Drew Black points out they have back Planned Parenthood for fifty years. Yes, it it seems the stated intentions of these organizations they do evolve if you look at how they started where they were in the middle, and how they are now. The things they say, and probably most of the things they do now, uh, they, they seem pretty good. They seem like health promotion organizations, you know? Even Edwin Black, I believe it was, who wrote, uh, what was it? War on the Week, uh, discussing America's eugenic, eugenics history. Even he, in the version of the book that I have, opens it up by saying, none of this applies to the current Planned Parenthood. The work that Planned Parenthood is doing now, I support. The work they did before, as described in this book, was eugenics. Now that's his perspective. I'm, all I'm saying is what I have written here. Okay, now much more could be said about Mr. Bankman and Mrs. Freed, but we gotta get to SPF. Also, we're half an hour in. I know this journey has been long and winding and has certainly taken me down paths I didn't expect. In the end, though, each nook and cranny so far has only brought out more intrigue and has seemingly helped frame a lot of the big picture that has thus far seemed to be only loosely connected ideological concepts and webs of donors, both specific to the FTX scandal and also just kind of more generally what's going on. It's weird how things keep seeming to actually be meaningfully related. Now we have a framing of who Sam Bankman-Fried's parents were and still are and some of the legacies that they occupy. Now, we're going to move at this point in for the touchdown and zero in on the man himself, Sam Bankman-Fried. But for today, we're all done. If you have enjoyed the show, and have been watching live, please drop us a Rumble rant if you're watching on Rumble, or a tip on Rockfin or on Odyssey. And more importantly, before you leave, don't forget to go over to roundingtheearth.locals.com where you can sign up as a free member or 
for as little as $5 a month, you can become a paid supporter as well. There we are hosting weekly insider discussions for paid members about topics that we're not yet ready to go public with, but bear discussing nonetheless. I am considering doing my first solo roundtable with you guys tomorrow because I do have some very interesting information that um, isn't ready to talk about more publicly. And Matthew is out of town. So that's why I say it might be solo. So we'll see what happens. But to get involved with that, go to Locals, sign up there. It'll be free to watch live and available as a replay for paid supporters after the fact. Now, remember, this all came about because Matthew wrote his article titled A Grand Unified Theory of the FTX Disaster. So if you have not read that, uh, you can go to roundingtheearth.substack.com where you can find that piece. Now, jumping way back to the end of my little slideshow here, there is my face. I have been Liam Sturgis. You can find me at www.liamsturgis.com or on Twitter at the Liam Sturgis. And I will see you possibly tomorrow, but definitely Friday for our regularly scheduled weekly news roundup right here on Rounding the Earth. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Drew Black. Thank you to everybody who's commented and watched live. We will see you on Friday. Mm -hmm.